This is CQ Future, and I'm Sean Zeller. We began this series last year to examine how the COVID-19 crisis has influenced public policy decisions. This week, we are reprising some of our podcasts to mark the one-year anniversary of the realization that the world was facing a pandemic. In December, we looked at its toll on working moms. The statistics speak volumes. The Census Bureau reported that a third of working women, 25 to 44 years old, who are unemployed, said the reason was childcare. What's worse is that experts say women who are dropping out of the labor force may not find a way back in. Pay equity? Forget about it. Re-entering the workforce? Not really, as you will be behind. It has left millions of women forced to make a choice, work or parent, regardless of whether it is an economically or spiritually sound decision. The $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief bill Congress just passed could help. It has new subsidies for families with children age 17 and under. The bill offers two major avenues for assistance, stimulus checks and an expanded child tax credit. We spoke to Anne Marie Slaughter about the future of working women. She rose to national prominence in 2012 after quitting her high-powered job as then-Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's policy planning director. She shocked the white-collar world when she wrote an article for The Atlantic entitled Why Women Still Can't Have It All. Here, we reprise our interview with Ms. Slaughter. Well, welcome, Professor Slaughter. We appreciate you joining us. My pleasure to be here. So, Professor, in your Atlantic piece, you argued that the factors preventing women from having satisfying work and family lives were primarily cultural, work cultures that favor people who put in a lot of hours and FaceTime and are always on call. But you ended the piece on a hopeful note um, because you said a new generation was coming and they had different values and you saw positive things ahead. That was eight years ago. How do you feel now? Well, I think that things have definitely gotten better in the workplace. And COVID has accelerated that in the sense that for those bosses who said, no, no, you have to be here and you have to be here from nine to five, eight to six, seven to seven, whatever it was, uh, they've now been clearly proven wrong. We, we, you know, the economy, at least the knowledge economy, has fu- functioned uh, virtually from people at home. So that, in that sense, it, it accelerated what was already a trend. As millennials were saying, "Look, my work is wherever my computer is. I don't see why I should sit sit in an office." And and basically, employers were having to adapt to be able to attract top talent. All of that is good, and uh, I do think uh, going forward, I expect people, again, people who are knowledge workers, people working through their computer, it's a different thing for those who are are still doing physical place-based work. Uh, But for, for knowledge workers, I really think it'll get much better, much more flexible. I expect people to be working three days in the office and two at home or broken up in all sorts of ways. 
Right. That's kind of the silver lining coming out of the pandemic. And as you mentioned, your Atlantic piece very explicitly was about knowledge workers, about the white-collar workforce, and about women in that workforce. And you talked about the burdens of travel, the burdens of having to be in the office for meetings. We're not going back there. So that's a silver lining. Yes. And in the travel alone, the number of women I know who are up for a promotion, but the next level meant a ton of travel. So they didn't want the promotion because it just wouldn't allow them to be the parent they wanted to be and the the professional they wanted to be. That suddenly is really going to loosen up. I mean, I was traveling constantly. And I, again, I think there are an awful lot of meetings where you jump on a plane for one hour, three hours, no way. That will be continually to be done done virtually. So that will also help uh, parents, but still mostly women uh, who want to be able to juggle at that next level. Now there's no demarcation between those two spaces. And so it's easier to work into the night. It's easier to delay your break for dinner um, when you don't have to rush out to go get your kids and you don't have, you know, sort of a set schedule. And so I don't know, it, it doesn't, it strikes me that there's a, there's a positive there in the flexibility, but there's also a need for people to set boundaries. And I don't know if the work culture allows that. What do you think? Well, the people have to set boundaries. Bosses have to respect boundaries. And it's absolutely true. I always used to say that many of the working mothers, working fathers who were primary caregivers were the most efficient workers I know. They would show up and they would know that, you know, they had eight hours uh, before they had to pick up their kids and, you know, they got it done in that amount of time. And then in many ways, uh, that's healthier because even I remember when my kids were small, you know, that race across town to pick them up at daycare. But then, (laughs) you know, that was the demarcation line. And I might well get back online after they were in bed when they were really little because they went to bed at seven or eight. You know, then you get to the phase where you go to bed before they do. and And it's different. But I do think that's the other side of all of this. And the side that I didn't pay attention to in 2012 when I wrote my Atlantic article, but that I I really came to focus on in Unfinished Business, the book I published in 2015, is that house side. It's the care side. It's the all the work uh, that goes into, obviously, caring for kids, caring for parents, caring for anyone uh, who needs it. And there, yes, you're now the, the, the big downside of the pandemic. I mean, there are many, but uh, even for women who are knowledge workers is suddenly, you know, as you say, there are no boundaries, but of course also kids are not in school by and large, they're in virtual school and somebody's got to oversee that. And and so everything is all in the same place all the time. And the women are wildly disproportionately bearing that load. Even when the the fathers say, no, no, it's 50-50 when you do the time charts, it's not. It's 70-30, 75-25, I'm not saying they're not doing anything, but they are not really sharing. And so you're seeing women opting out. You're seeing almost a million women who've already dropped out of the workforce or or gone part-time because they just can't do it. So if we are going to shift to semi-home-based work, we have to change the culture of work, but we also have to change the burden or the sharing the obligation of care. Care is not a, it, it's not a burden. It's something that that is 
deeply rewarding, at least some of the time, but it's work. It's definitely work. You talk in the piece about work cultures and how uh, employers favor people willing to work all hours and be on call. And you had, um, you know, you marveled at some of the the leading women in the, in our professional world, uh, Cheryl Mills, who was chief of staff to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and Cheryl Stanberg, the um, Facebook executive, and how you know Mills would rise every day at four a.m. and Sandberg would leave work at five thirty so she could have dinner with her family, but then of course she would be back online to finish her work later in the evening. And it sort of struck me that, you know, that's that candle burning on both ends work culture that for a lot of people, they just don't want. And, you know, you talk about the pursuit of happiness. I mean, isn't it okay to eschew that lifestyle? It is in Europe. It isn't normally in America. I mean, you know, you go to Europe and people have six weeks of vacation and they work, right? But they and they work hard. The French are more productive than the Americans by hours worked. If you hour by hour, they are more productive than Americans. But they stop working and and live, right? So they they work to live rather than living to work. And there is a happy medium. I mean, I I certainly have deep workaholic tendencies and pulled plenty of all nighters until I was forty, and even one in the State Department. Uh, but it is not healthy. Unless you're, you know, in the government and the National Security Council and the world is, you know, there are jobs where you simply have to do that or you're a surgeon. Or, although even there in medicine, there are, way, you know, times on and times off. It is unhealthy. And ultimately, I think it is bad for output. I think it's bad for productivity. People burn out uh, and they, they ultimately you lose uh, a lot of the talent. Uh, again, I think caregivers, fathers as well as mothers who you know, have a reason to be home are often just far more efficient than people who think, well, I'm going to be here till midnight anyway, so I might as well take a long lunch, or I might as well just hang out and talk to somebody in their office, as opposed to I've got eight hours to get it done, I'm going to get it done. So Congress is working now on another COVID relief bill to get some aid out to Americans who are suffering. And when Joe Biden takes office next month, they want to do more. He wants to do more. What can they do to help the women who've dropped out of the workforce, who've lost their jobs in the service industries, um, get back? So, again, different categories. Uh, For women who have have stepped out of the workforce, there there ought to be a kind of almost like an amnesty, right? You know, where, where firms, just like a moratorium on evictions, where firms across the country need to take a look at who they lost and say, wait a minute, we need you, we need you back in. And we need you back in either part-time uh, or, or full-time, but on a very flexible schedule. This is something that, again, is just a, an extreme example of something we see all the time where women don't want to leave the workforce, but they're forced out because they cannot make their work and their caregiving obligations fit together. Employers who want to keep them, who recognize how much talent there is, can definitely find a way. But there the administration can do a lot of urging. It may be able to do you know, some policy measures, but really I think a lot of this will be about uh, encouraging firms uh, to to find ways to get that talent uh, back in. 
Longer term, though, we need a whole infrastructure of care. And you are seeing that. That's part of the Biden plan. People have finally realized that this is not just child care. It's child care and elder care. And I'm a boomer and I'm, I'm born in 58. So I'm the height of the baby boom. As my generation ages, we need more elder care. But again, also people who are ill, anybody who is vulnerable for some for some reasons, we need we need child universal child care. We need paid family leave. Uh, we need long term care arrangements. It's a it's it's a whole infrastructure that is just as important to the to making the society and the economy function as roads and ports and bridges and broadband. Uh, and that is part of what the um, Biden administration is, is focusing on. Obviously, it will require Congress. But this is one where I do think there, there has been support on the Republican side for paid family leave, not as much as on the Democratic side. But I think there, you know, families, care, uh, enabling Americans to care for one another. This is something that I think you, that gets traction on the right and the left. The Republicans are calling this the year of the Republican woman because they did uh, a number of Republican women were elected to the House. Uh, I, I believe there'll be more Republican women this coming year than ever before. So does that give you some hope that there will be more bipartisanship around those issues to support women in professional careers? I certainly hope so. Uh, although, <laughs> well, you mentioned you know, it in your article, you said like one of the preconditions is getting women into these jobs. Yes, uh, and I, I definitely believe that if you had equal representation of women and men th- across all political office, then when something like the pandemic hit and somebody was talking about, well, you know, what has to shut down. <laughs> there would be, and you see, saw this in the Nordic countries, they didn't shut down the schools and the daycare because you know you would have people sitting there going, well, that will shut down the economy too, because women won't be able to work then, as well as people who are thinking more of men who are you know working in, uh, in, in lots of, of different offices thinking about, well, we have to keep these open because the men, men have to work. It, again, it's both, but I I wouldn't go so far to say as just because you're a woman, you automatically care about these issues. We're going to have Republican women who are probably very worried about the deficit, right? Who are, are you know, they, they, it isn't as simple as women and care. And I actually think there are an awful lot of men uh, and maybe more men on the Democratic side, but maybe not, but a lot of men who also think we need a, uh, uh, to support uh, caregiving and who would very, I don't know about very happily, but if, if we make it possible for men to really share caregiving 50-50, I think there are many men, particularly in the millennial or, uh, generation, who will, will do that more. This has been a year of protest, street protest. We've had people vociferously arguing for racial justice. We've had protests of the lockdowns in our cities and states. We haven't had a working women's protest. I mean, is that's what, would that help if women took to the streets? It might. I mean, (laughs) what you've seen is women are too exhausted, right? I mean, honestly, there was a a great op-ed late uh, in the summer that said women would be in the streets, but they, you know, between work and caregiving and schooling, 
There's just no way. And for those, you know, remember 40% of American women are the primary breadwinner in their family. Uh, and so that, and there's a lot of single moms in there. How on earth, how on earth can we expect them to be, you know, somehow finding ways for their kids to be cared for, doing their jobs, uh, overseeing schooling and, and have time for anything else? I I'm not sure that women protesting is the way to go. I do think it is a constant push on the on the fact that the uh, the American economy cannot compete without female talent. It just can't. Uh, you know, we're not going to compete with, with with the top economies of the world, and that two keep women and frankly caregiving men in the workplace, we've got to change how we support care. When you look at other countries, I mean, in Europe, they have much more generous benefits along these lines. Should we take a lesson from them? I do think Northern Europe in particular, the Nordic countries, uh, Britain to some extent, the Netherlands, those are places where, you know, you'll see fathers picking up kids at four o'clock or five o'clock just as much as mothers. It's really focused on how do we enable people to have thriving families? And that's how we have to think about it, not as a women's issue, but as a family issue. And equally, how do we value that work of caregiving? I mean, again, we think of it as physical, like bathing and feeding, but supervising your child on a on virtual education is also caregiving, right? Education, discipline, mobilization, it, 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 it's, it isn't, physical care is just, just the, the kind of starting point. Uh, so there again, I think we sh- we need to focus on how European states enable strong families, and we would find that that has economic and social benefits as well. And the last thing I'll say, though, then is we also have to pay our paid caregivers much more, right? And those are overwhelmingly women of color, overwhelmingly immigrant women. And if you want to, again, create a care infrastructure, those women are essential, but you've got to pay them a living wage. You've got to get benefits for them. That will then help close that gap between knowledge workers and other workers. Uh, but it's, it's also just part of getting good care. How long do you think it'll be in this country before we have equality for working women? So I actually, I mean, I think if you actually focus on the care side as much as the career side, I think you can do this in 10 to 20 years. And I think it's striking that Melinda Gates, who's been studying you know, gender equality now for 20 years, has concluded, she has a, a campaign called Equality Can't Wait. And at, cur- at the current rate of sort of equalizing how many women are doctors and how many women are, are law partners and how many women are... CEOs, we're looking at well into the next century before we're going to get equality. That won't do. And so she also, in the equality can't wait, she focuses on the care side. And that's why I say the difference in 2012, when I wrote that article, I was a classic upper middle class white feminist who thought, All I need is for you to remove obstacles from me at work, make it possible for me to work flexibly, and I will just, you know, soar. I now look around and say, that's a really small slice of American women. And if we really want to level the playing field, we've got to make it possible for women and men 
to have care and career together. And that requires much, much bigger change and public infrastructure, not just private changes. I mentioned how hard the pandemic has hit working women. So many have dropped out of the workforce. Did that catch you off guard at all? Were you surprised by that outcome? I have been surprised because I actually thought that now that men and women were both working at home, as I say, I'm working downstairs, my husband's working upstairs. I actually thought this would trigger a far more equal division of household labor because I thought, you know, now, you know, he's not going to be able to avoid it. He's right there. He sees it. And, and as you add uh, homeschooling effectively or a version of it, it's, it's going to be untenable unless they're really splitting it 50, 50. And instead what we've seen is women still doing the lion's share uh, and the, and then saying, I just can't do it. And that does surprise me. And it some of it may be the man is still making more. And so if somebody's got it, if something's got to give, it's going to be hers. That's still, we've still got a lot of pay gap and that really does matter. But some of it may just still be cultural that he's like, well, you're better at it or it's your job. Some of it may be the woman not actually being willing to demand what she needs, or even more insidiously, not really believing he can do it. And this is a this is very fraught, but it ultimately there are a fair number of women who just think when it comes to the kids, she's got to do it, otherwise it won't be done well enough. And you have to kind of get past that and let him do it his way. But I, I thought we'd see more change in terms of those domestic relations. And instead, we've seen women being forced out, and that is the worst result. You talk about the investments government could make in caregiving to help working mothers balance their work life. Um, We know Congress is very divided, that it's been gridlocked now for years on many questions, and it will be divided in January. How do you get that past the finish line? Well, I honestly think that the country needs sweeping reform in a whole lot of areas. And I see us as uh, being in the equivalent of the early 20th century between, say, you know, 1902 or 1905, uh, 1915, 1920, where there were really big changes made. Or again, maybe during the new, during the New Deal. Uh, and the Biden administration and the way power is split right now, of course, we don't know how the Senate will turn out, but if the Senate is really split 50-50, that's, that, those are not the conditions for sweeping change. I think you're going to see a lot of it in states uh, because I think states just you know, can't survive in, in, with a lot of the, the infrastructure they've got, things like broadband, things like school reform. Uh, and, and, you know, again, we saw states lead on health care. We're going to probably see states lead on, on child care. But ultimately, um, we have to have this, this, this magnitude of change. And I don't know whether we're going to, you know, the, the current political system will deliver this magnitude of change or the need for this change will revolutionize the political system. And there's pressures in both, in both ways, you know, that we really need to overhaul our electoral rules. Uh, But I am confident that going forward with men and women 
both working. We need them to work. We need to upgrade the care our children get, particularly for our poorest children, but up and down the line, uh, that either we make this level of change or we effectively sink as a country. Your article in The Atlantic was headlined, Why Women Can't Have It All. If you were redoing the piece today, updating it, how would you headline it? I should start by just saying I have regretted that title (laughs) for those eight years because it was (laughs) supposed to be why women still can't have it all, meaning here's the changes we need to make, but most people read it exactly as why women can't have it all, and I'm the poster child for supposedly you can't do it, which is the opposite of the, the message, although I don't think it should be up to women. But today I would write an article probably called Who Cares? question mark and why that matters for the future of gender equality. Professor Slaughter, thanks so much. Thank you. That's all for this episode of CQ Future. I'm Sean Zeller. You can find all of our CQ Roll Call podcasts at rollcall.com or your favorite podcast app. We'll be taking a break for the holidays, but look for more podcasts in the new year. Thank you.